Good morning. Welcome to SOGCAST number 37. My name is John Stryker-Meyer. I'll be your host today. This production of SOGCAST is brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willing Productions and his technical staff. And we're joined today by Kerry Helton. Kerry? So we're off and running here. Um, I'm going to go to On the Ground for just a quick moment to get us started. Junkins came running into our hooch with bad news. RT Virginia has been hit. Wald and Brown are down. Jesus H. Christ, I can't believe it. Wald told me that they told him it was a dry hole. Give me your PRC 25. Someone said they heard Brown on the radio. No word yet. Later on, the team had been overrun. Ten days later, we were at CCN and RT Oregon was on the ground. Again, we don't know exactly what the fate of that team was, but it too was hit by enemy forces in Laos and the team was uh, wiped out. There are two Americans. The 1-0 was Ronald Ray and then Randy Suber was the 1-1 who had been in country several months. And today we're going to take a little different spin from the action side of it to talk about what happens to a family of one of our SOG warriors that go missing in action. And today, as we speak, there are 1,581 Americans still listed as missing in action in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War. Out of that number, 50 Americans, Green Berets, are part of that listing. And included in that is one for the two men, Ray and Randy Suber. And in this case, four days later, and that team was hit on November 13, 1969, four days later, the family of Randy received the following telegram. The Secretary of the Army has asked me to express his deep regret that your son, Sergeant Randolph B. Suber, has been reported missing an accident in Southeast Asia since 13 November 1969. He was last seen while on a combat operation when a hostile force was encountered. Search is in pro- progress and you will be promptly advised when further information is received. In order to protect any information that might be used to your son's detriment, your cooperation, information concerning his name, rank and service number, and date of birth. This confirms personal notification by a representative of the Army, Secretary of the Army, Kenneth G. Vickham, Major General, U.S. Army, Adjutant General, Washington, D.C. So today, I welcome and honored by the presence of Jim Suber, the younger brother of Randy, and um, I just think that uh, we talk about those numbers, and today it's just important to personalize this more. And at that time, when your family received that news, you were how old and what stage of your life are you in? Because uh, take it from there, Jim. Welcome to the show. Well, Tilda, it's an honor to be here. Thank you very much for having me, and I'm excited to do this. Um, I'll preface everything by saying that as as far as a great deal of the 
the beginning of the story comes from uh, the filter of an 11-year-old boy. Oh, yes, indeed. So, so I'm the youngest of four siblings. I have a sister who's a little older than Randy and a brother who's a little younger. And then I'm quite a distance apart. You're the so, Jimmy he referred uh, yes, to in the letters. Correct. That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. So um, uh, I'm not exactly sure what date. I guess it was November the 17th. But uh, in Randy's last letter home, he made a request to purchased seven pairs of Levi blue jeans. And this was for his, his team. Indige members. The Indige yeah. members. And uh, he had sizes and, and all kinds of stuff. And so uh, my mom had uh, gone out and purchased these things and put them in a package and, and um, took them to the post office. And as she was going to the post office, she saw an Army staff car driving through the neighborhood, and we lived in a neighborhood where the streets were crazy and people got lost there all the time. And so she, she just <laughs> remarked to herself and told us the story later that she thought they were lost, and boy, I sure hope they're not coming to our home. Right. And so um, we, uh, she went to the post office, came home, and sure enough, about half an hour later, the doorbell rings, and it's two lucky guys from the army who have to deliver this horrible news and they they I, I believe uh, also delivered this telegram at the same time and so she's home alone and and uh, you know that's sad story that same scene think about how many times that's happened in the history of America and and in uh, our fighting service people and so she's there uh, alone and my dad at the at that time was the commanding recruiter for the Air Force for Missouri and Illinois, and his office was in downtown St. Louis, and I'm sure she called him, and and uh, and then they notified my uh, my sister and and brother, but they didn't tell me uh, for several months, and I think that their logic behind it was, hey, you know, he's a SOG guy, he might show up, and let's <laughs> right. let's not let's not <clears throat> let's not upset uh, you know his youngest brother until we really know what's going on. Wow. So um, when did you? When did she finally tell you? Because uh, that was a delayed time period there. It certainly was. <laughs> and I and I and I even at that tender age of eleven and then turning twelve uh, over that period of time, you know, I had a sense that something wasn't right. Uh, there was one moment where I went up to my mom. She's sitting at her desk in her in her bedroom and. And I said, hey, you know, have you received any letters from Randy? You know, and she said, no, it's been a while. And, and, and you know, what's going on? And she, said, she just looked me directly in the eye and she said, uh, he's on a very long mission. Wow. And she, did, she didn't crack. I didn't pick up anything in terms of that sure. message to me. But I think that was her, her way to herself of saying, you know, we've got hope that, you know, he's going he's gonna to show up. You know, that was kind of his style sure. in terms of uh, his, his, uh, his, his life growing up. And so um, they told me, uh, in fact, it was my dad uh, who, who uh, told me in, in July of 1970, which I knew, you know, sure. I knew that was the time he was supposed to be coming home. And that's when he said uh, he's missing an action. And I didn't know what that meant. Sure. And, and, but he explained, well, doesn't, we don't know if he was killed, and we don't know if he was 
uh, taken prisoner. We don't know if he's still running around, you know, uh, wherever. And he told me whatever he could, and then he showed me actually these telegrams. And then he said, we keep a file, and this is where we keep it. And anytime you want to go look at it, here's where it is. Wow. And so there's no mention about where he actually died or there's nothing about the top secret side. All you knew was that he was in the Special Forces, a Green Beret, in Vietnam. He's on a mission, and he's not coming home. Yeah. Oh, my God. And so your mom, your dad are adjusting. Of course, your dad, like being a recruiter and all, he's bringing folks in. And now you're sitting there with that telegram. On the other end, there's just that uh, yeah. that family pain that you all suffered right away. And because uh, um, from the the side of the valor of, of Randy and and Ron, how long did it go before you all ever had a hint that there may have been something special about not just being in Vietnam, but being in the CNC McVie SOG at the time? Well, you know, his letters, which I've, I've reread several times, oh, uh, yes. they, they certainly <laughs> <laughs> maybe tell more than they were supposed to. Uh, but, but he did not, you know, exactly say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm part of a recon team that's uh, running missions along the Ho Chi Minh Trail in uh, Laos uh, or Cambodia <laughs> or North Vietnam. And, uh, but, but he does mention SOG by name and you know every one of his envelopes uh, that you see and and the letters that my family sent to him are all addressed to CCN you know MACV SOG 5th Special Forces which all this time I've thought he was 7th <coughs> Special Forces uh, right. because he's got the red uh, emblem, the red flash on the red parade. flash yeah. and I've never seen For one with 5th group. but apparently he was with 5th group I, you know at least in this in this uh, tour um so, yeah, and you know, and, and the letters, uh, it gives you a little flavor of what was going on because you had one from September of '69. CCN took a beating last week. Six people were killed in action. Two were seriously wounded. I suppose now the remaining troops will have to carry our heavy, heavier burden. My closest friend was killed two days ago, and it hurts. First Lieutenant Peter. McMurray, yeah. and, we're, and, and we're not sure about that. That's just pure conjecture. That's some. Yo, he was a KIA, right? But we're not sure that they were that. That's the guy oh, that sure. that Randy's referring to in that letter, so. right? Very good. And then <clears throat> he also goes on to talk about further. Uh, my one zero has been here about three years. He knows the stuff in the field. It's true. You know, he was a great one zero. And well, and I think the stuff. same, basically the same age. Is that right? So, you know, <laughs> so Randy was 23, uh, 22. So th- does that mean the guy started running missions when he was 19, uh, 20? Well, who knows? That's, that's a good question. we have to do the math on that later. <laughs> <laughs> so you get a little flavor of that, but and, and uh, uh, the uh, reading that today from him talking to you all, it's just like, he was. He was talking a little bit further on some of the details. It's just amazing, and I love it. But on the other hand, um, getting back to the initial question, of when did you clearly, like the family, say, okay, not only was he there with Special Forces, which we always felt was the, the premier you know, military force in Vietnam, but also 
uh, the tip of the spear of special forces. Right. Well, I, you know, my it's interesting. My dad uh, was an avid tennis player, and his favorite tennis partner, <clears throat> um, when we were stationed at Hamilton Air Force Base, which would have been 1972, 73, 74, uh, um, his uh, tennis partner was what we later learned was a CIA in uniform. And so, really? Yes. <laughs> and he was a super cool guy. Um, and, um, and, you know, just because of that connection, I know that, and, and other reasons, obviously, my dad was a lieutenant colonel. And, and so, you know, he'd been an, a career military guy, he could figure it out. And, and so we, there was conjecture that, oh, you know, they're probably doing something along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right. And then in 1973, shortly after, must have been maybe 30 days after the American POWs were returned home, which I believe was February 14th, Valentine's Day, Indeed. 1973, the, uh, uh, the Department of Defense sent two guys, hopefully it wasn't the same two guys that <laughs> came <laughs> in lost. November 1969, and they... I'll just show you this map, and it's it's uh, huge and all this stuff. But they basically laid it out on a on a <clears> coffee <throat> table in our in our living room, and we all kind of gathered around, and they just pointed to some coordinates, and it, and it was Laos, and not so, Vietnam, no, <clears throat> and so you know a, a little, but they didn't tell us anything else. They just said, "Here's where it happened." Wow. Yeah. That's I'm surprised you even went that far. <laughs> Well, it was 1973, and sure. maybe they were throwing us a bone or whatever. But, you know, uh, and for anybody that's listened to your podcast and listened to your, your interviews, um, we didn't know as a family about the 20-year moratorium, on, or, you know, the, the non-disclosure that, uh, that, he you, signed. that you right. signed, sure. he signed, anybody <clears throat> signed. And so that made it even, you know, darker and quieter. And so, you know, we didn't well, know. Well, in one of his letters, I mean, he was really cognizant of that, even from his side, because he wrote <clears throat> in one of your letters, because of security, we are required to destroy all correspondence. It seems that Charlie, the enemy, either the Viet Cong or NVA spies, go through the dump and police up letters and learn a lot of intel, but a whole bunch about the American personnel. So if you get any crank letters or letters other than from the DA or PP stating I am dead or injured, ignore them. They are commie inspired. <laughs> you know, on one hand, he's very aware of it. But on the other hand, the, the mind games that they could have been playing, he's right. on top of his game with that. Right. So by 73, your dad's got – but in between, you got your first Christmas yeah. in 1969. Yeah. You know, 70, right? yeah. 70. 69, well, they knew I didn't. <clears throat> right. We're watching Bob Hope. We're watching all the specials, you know. Oh, sure. You know, again, this is uh, from, from an American history standpoint, we're watching the war on TV. You know, we're huddled around a little kitchen table having dinner. You know, and by this time, my older siblings have left the house, and so it's just my parents and and uh, and, and, uh, and me. And, uh, you know, it's this little tiny goofy kitchen table that we ate dinner on every night yeah and we had one of those rca color tvs that you could swivel you know it was on rollers so you could you could watch it in the family room and then when it was dinner time we'd turn and we'd watch it there and we'd watch walter cronkite and there's the war 
you know, almost yeah. on a nightly basis. And, you know, there's the Bob Hope special and we, the USO and all that stuff. We're watching it. I'm thinking as a little kid, oh, yeah, you know, he might be out there. He might be in that crowd. Well, you know, I don't think so. I don't yeah. think you saw guys went to the Bob Hope specials. but A few guys but, snuck in, but uh, – <laughs> It was hard getting past as extra sure. dancers, I'm sure. Yeah. Indeed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so see, and that that's the side of this thing. What your family goes through those first few years. So your dad's getting a little bit of a of a clue about it. Sure. And you're growing up. So by now, I'm 74. You're now uh, 14. Yeah. And uh, it's like, will I ever see him again? Is that you at that point in time? Where well, you're, you know, it's or interesting. Do you still feel like? You, well, you got hope. You know, <clears throat> everybody deals with loss individually. Uh, you know, as a family, we were we were fair, fairly on the same page. But even within the same family, it's a uh, you know you have to deal with it uh, on your own. And so, you know, there there was never a moment where we all just collectively said, "Okay, that's it. It's over." I mean, the, we 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 kept hope, and I probably kept hope the longest. Sure. That somehow he would turn up again. He had, you know, this was his background. He was a SOG guy. Um, I didn't know what that meant. We didn't know what that meant. Sure. Um, uh, you know, that's been part of the, the the beautiful thing for me as far as the unfoldment of what's happened since, and 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 mostly pretty recently, really, for me, is just to have this greater appreciation for what that meant to be a SOG man. But we didn't know what that meant. One of his letters, early letters, <clears throat> makes it sound like he was assigned to an A-team, and then that changed, and then he was sent to SOG. Now, as I understand it from all of your podcasts, that was something you volunteered for. Indeed. But... Um, We've even interviewed some guys that were volunteered. Yeah, well, and he <laughs> or may, voluntold. And, and he may have been one of them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but he's he was there. Yeah. And I remember him from that time because I had arrived there back in the late '69. Went back in camp. Yeah, back into the recon company. And of course, you, your brother was a handsome guy. I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, not not his youngest brother, but yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> but that twenty year again that we. The government, um, you know, what a what a what an awkward situation, obviously for 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 the Department of Defense, uh, and I think maybe if somebody had just told us and told all the other families, hey, you know, there's a there's a non disclosure period here. You know, I'm not sure how we would have taken it then. That probably would have <laughs> erupted, but. Um, but that really was this cloak of, of mystery that just made it even even more you know crazy, and um, as a family in that situation, um, we were really quiet. We didn't you know our neighbors might have known about it. I think my parents probably told them because they saw him, you know, a couple of times when right. he was home on leave, and a, and a couple of very close family friends. But for a very long time, we didn't talk about it. So I'd go to school, and I think they may have said something to my school and said, hey, don't, you know. Yeah, be advised. Don't bring this up. Yeah. And, in fact, there was one instance when I was uh, playing high school football. In fact, my high school football coach was a, was a Vietnam veteran and, and had won the Silver Star. He was a Marine and had led his platoon through a, a minefield, among other things. And 
So he was a stud, and we were uh, we were working on uh, goal line defense one day, and he starts telling a story about the Green Berets, and oh, you know, they built this they built this base camp down in a valley, and and so when we play goal line defense. We wanna we wanna be the meanest sons of bitches in the valley. And that's the way he was describing it <laughs> yeah, to yeah. us. You know, his varsity sure. football team playing goal line defense, and, uh, <laughs> and and you know, and so we did the rally cry was you know being a son of a bitch in the valley. You know, we're the Green Berets, blah blah blah. Well, then after that practice, he pulled me aside and he goes, "Oh man, I'm I'm really sorry." Oh really? And I said, "Oh, don't be sorry. I'm proud." Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. But other than that, there was no teacher, there were no counselors, there were no coaches who sure. pulled me aside and said, hey, how you doing? Right. Nobody. Sure. And like you said, you had the eternal hope. I did. You really believed in Randy I, at I some did. point would show up somehow. Like. I did. Yeah. He, he uh, again, he, he like the talented people in SOG, particularly the recon men, uh, he was he was super talented, and uh, you know it's funny. As a kid growing up, he um, uh, he went to military school, and so he 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 was never conventional about anything. And so when he was going to come home, rather than sending a letter or making a phone call, he'd send a pair of dirty pants. <laughs> you know that was his signal for hey I'm coming home. No kidding. Soon, you know, do the laundry, please, <laughs> and stuff like that. Help or he'd just up, show huh? up. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's that. And th- and then, you know, certainly after 1973, in the media uh, and in our culture in America, there were plenty of people saying, "Oh, you know, there's a good chance that we've left prisoners behind." Right. So. And then, meanwhile, you have all the other things that are going on. You know, we do have POWs that came home. We're hip hip hooray for that and it was a good moment in history you still have very virulent anti-war protesters going on yeah and then you come up to did april 30th 1970 have an impact on you and your family at all when the vietnam war officially ended at that date with the embarrassing withdrawal from saigon it just just uh, just a you know horrible feeling yeah of, you know of defeat and loss and yeah, After all you know, the, what's this for? And yeah, indeed. And I just want to get back to Randy's letters a little bit because first he was talking about the uh, some of the anti-war stuff. Yeah. In, in the letter, he said the attitude of the states makes me sick. It makes you feel real good to come back from a mission and read about the anti-Vietnam garbage. I wish they would make every one of them just walk through a village that has been overrun by the Viet Cong or NVA armies. I wonder how the hippies, yippies, and cowards and draft resistors would feel if they came home and found their wives and children with their heads bashed in or dismembered or displayed in the town square. How strange how people have forgotten Hungary and Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia was 68 and Hungary was 56, where the Russians just went in with the tanks and ran over the people and when they wanted to have a little bit of just freedom and independence. Yeah. And uh, he went on to talk <clears throat> about the situation that's going on. And I haven't been able to play any tennis, though they do have several tennis clubs in the area. And he says, there's a captain, Mike Taylor. Yeah, he didn't. That's my note. It, who plays regularly yeah. that I made dates to play with, but either I am in the field or he is in the field. And I'm still waiting for my orders for E6. <laughs> 
<laughs> or they're in the field together, which they were. Yes. We learn later. So yeah. that so that's <clears throat> my note. He doesn't mention Mike's name. He didn't mention anybody's name in these letters. He did. He did but, good. But, that's true. But I'm but I'm figuring. You know, I figured out. Oh, that's Mike Taylor. Because when I finally connected with Mike Taylor in recent history, he said, "Oh, I used to play tennis with your brother." No kidding. Oh, yeah, that's cool. And then, um, and for the record, we uh, Mike Taylor was uh, sawcast number zero zero nine. Yeah, and a uh, good one. Yes, well, thank you. And uh, uh, Mike ran recon at CCS. He ran a little bit. He came up to CCN, ran a few missions, and including those missions with RT Oregon. Yeah, that's right. And then he went and flew Covey out of NKP for 18 months. He was in country for wow. five years altogether. Wow. And it was all SF. So uh, just one of our heroes and uh, was really involved in the last – five years of his life through the SOA and the Joint POWMA Committee in efforts to encourage the government, our government, to do more to identify, find, and return, um, particularly our SOG brothers. That's right. So Mike Taylor was the one of those people. And uh, so getting back to, there's one more letter where he really captured um, some of the drama about a day-to-day life at CCN. He said they were going to, I go into isolation tomorrow, will be inserted into my target area the following day. With this lull in the war, my job has become more critical. With the offensive, and this letter was written October 26, 1969. Yeah. Both sides have almost standstill. Saigon still wants to know what the North Vietnamese Army and Charlie are up to. Henceforth, we are running a great amount more targets than usual. I'm happy to say that we haven't taken any casualties for a few weeks. And then referring to his brother, I'm so glad Jimmy is shaping up. <laughs> <laughs> they were worried. <laughs> Indeed. <Yeah. laughs> but that's, uh, again, it's just some of that insights, you know. Yeah. And to what the mission was. But he didn't say it, but it was really important at the time. Yeah. And so when, as time goes on, you get through high school, and all the holidays come and go, and that just hangs over the yep. family. Yeah. And talk to is there any experiences along the way? Because there's years until you finally learn some of the details about, you know, what what a true hero Randy was and his team. Right. Um, you know, just uh, uh, a lot of awkward moments as a family. Yeah. Sitting in a room and. Uh, so, you know, one of the bizarre things for me, and I don't know that it was nearly as important for anyone else in our family, but I, I just always thought it was so strange that we never heard from anybody that served with them. Yeah. Never got any photographs. I don't know where you got all your photographs. But. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can say it or not. <laughs> well, I was pretty good about not taking them because we, they really told us no photos. Yeah, well, he... he After we'd been here a while, a couple guys had brought their cameras out, and fortunately they had a few. I mean, yeah. otherwise it would be no record whatsoever Yeah, because a picture's worth a thousand words. I would love to see a photo of his team. Oh, yeah. There. I mean, that would be, that would be awesome. Um, so... Um, it, uh, it, it, again, we were still pretty, 
pretty quiet about it as a family. Uh, uh, most of my friends had no clue uh, that I had an older brother, uh, you know, an oldest brother. Yeah, yeah. And so it just, you know, unless, and as I got older and older, for me, uh, if I trusted somebody and it, felt, and it felt appropriate, I would tell them, sure. you know, the story. Uh, but if I, you know, if I didn't, they they would have never known. And your mom had to be a tough gal just to carry that. But well, you she, know it she, always she, hits she, the mothers harder. She, she, it, and it did. And it did. Uh, she was emotional. But, you know, I think being, um, being uh, having, having faith, you know, being a faith-based family, having that spiritual underpinning made all the difference. And so, you know, my parents were very um, loyal, very patriotic. And they, um, every single year they could, they would go to the League of Families. Uh, 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 so go to a little bit, the National League of POWMIA <clears throat> Families, that's uh, based in Virginia. Right. And uh, so your, your parents got involved in that. Well, they got involved in terms of attending. Okay. Well, yeah. They had the annual meeting. They'd go to the annual meeting. And Which has gone on for 52 it, years it, it, now. And, and, and every year, <laughs> my mom, would, when they were doing it, would come back with the poster of the year. You know, this right. is the poster sure. of the year for, for the MIA um, cause. But, um, but they, didn't get, um, they didn't get any more involved than just attending. And, they'd, you know, they'd listen to the briefings. And there was one briefing where they um, – uh, somebody had suggested that maybe one of the the indige guys was a double agent, and that you know. So all of the stories of what what supposedly happened were like, oh, you know, none of it may be true at all. You know, maybe sure. they, you know who knows. So, um, but they were quiet about it. They continued to act like they were they had signed the twenty year, you know, right. non disclosure thing, and without uh, realizing, and it and it didn't seem like they. Um, had made any any friends really in terms of other special forces families that were there, but and particularly SOG families. So I never heard anything about that. I went one time with them when I was uh, young in my business and happened to be in Washington D.C. on a trip. And so I, you know, I, I carved out a couple of days or at least one day to go with them to uh, to that meeting. Sure. And um, it was depressing. You know, oh, yeah. as a young twenty-something, I it was depressing, uh, and um, you could almost tell the people there, the families there, that had some sort of um, spiritual background or foundation, and those that didn't. And was that clearly delineated? It, it seemed to me that was sure. the impression I had. I, I, you know, take it for what it's worth, but it just yeah. seemed like there was more emotional stability for those that had some faith to rely on. And uh, that was huge. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that was the <clears> – so I went more recently. <laughs> yeah. But in that one, uh, that one um, day I was there, I bumped into Donnie Shue's brother. No. And I recognize his name. Sure. And we kind of look at each other, and we're kind of about the same age, and I'm maybe just a little better looking than he is. Oh, of course. No. He, <laughs> he, uh, he, he looked a bit more fit than me, and I said, yeah, that could be a SOG brother. That, yeah, he looks like it, but we didn't say anything to each other. We just kind of said, hi, hi. Yeah, no kidding. Is that right? No comparing of any notes. And so, you know, that's weird, too. So you would think of anybody that there would be some sort of network of SOG families sure. within the bigger family of those all, all MIA families. But 
We didn't. Yeah, so like also <clears throat> just to go back for a little bit of a historical context here, the secret war went on for eight years from 64 to 72. 68 was the worst year in terms of casualties. 69 was right up there. And um, so by October of 69, the secret war was, was coming down the, the trail for five years at that point. Yep. And um, there were three separate SOG operations that launched missions across the fence. CCM, where Randy was. CCC was Contum. And then CCS was down at Bami Tuat at that time. And they mostly covered Cambodia. Contum had both Laos and Upper uh, Cambodia, and Laos and Cambodia. And then North Vietnam targets Nickel Steel, Laos, that was, the, that was where CCN ran. And those missions were, like in his, in his letter, even then, writing home carefully, you get a sense of yeah. what, the, what, was, what we were stacking up against in the field out there. And, of course, there had been, in 68, at the end of 68, Johnson stopped bombing in North Vietnam, so a lot of the anti-aircraft came south. And we also learned that by night, when I got there in 68, there were 25 to 30,000 NVA that we were told in our intel briefs in Laos. It could be anywhere from 50 to 100,000 in Cambodia. And by 70 and 71, they had over 90,000 on those trails, included were battalions of um, SOG, Hunter, Sapper teams yep. that did nothing but hunt down our teams, track them. And uh, when Wald and uh, Brown and Shoe were lost, they were hit by the same element, and we never knew who hit uh, RT Oregon. Right. And Oregon's history, you know, I would never worry about the indigenous ter- personnel on that team because in 68, May of 68, after Idaho was wiped out, they read RT Oregon with different Americans, ran the target with the same indige mm. that were there for Randy. And they went in to get uh, try to find uh, Idaho. Mm. And, of course, everybody was wounded, and they had lost one KIA on that mission alone. So Oregon had a, a history of uh, being a working recon team. Some teams had a reputation for training a lot, yeah. never quite getting across the <laughs> fence. But Oregon was not one of those. And you could just tell from reading Randy's letters yeah. how busy they were. Yeah, and he was lucky to have a really good. But here we don't know what happened. We'll never know the details of that. Well, we had, we got a little bit of insight when we when we ran into Lynn Black a few years ago. Talk about but, that. But well, but before <laughs> that, I guess I would just say that, and it's mentioned in in uh, one of Randy's letters that his Indige team were actually all former NVA soldiers. And he said in 1968, the 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 0-1, so they called that team leader the 0-1 on right. the Indian yeah, side. Yeah, so if, just for our first-time viewers, the team leader on a recon team was a 1-0, then a 1-1 one one is the assistant team leader. And so Randy was the assistant team leader. Yeah. And the counterpart for the uh, for the team leader for the indigenous troops is a 0-1. Right. Yes, sir. So that 0-1 was a captain in the NVA uh, uh, uh fighting against America in the Tet Offensive a year earlier. So he expresses a little concern, concern about that in, in that in one of those letters. Um, so I don't know. You yeah, know. that's amazing. I forgot about that part of it. <laughs> so at some point, uh, you all were get, able to get a correspondence or somehow linked with Lynn Black, who um, 
who ran missions with with us after he had a tour of duty with the 173rd. That's right. And of course, we have Sawcast number 26 and 27. Yeah. Where we had an interview with Lynn to get his story for those that are interested. But at some point, you had correspondence with him, and that letter was pretty revealing, because when he wrote that, <clears throat> um, I had taken, I was given the courier run. So I've got a courier run down to Saigon. And then I, I was detoured to go to Bangkok for a couple of days. During this time, Lynn comes back, hey, we got a bright light. So he had a strap hanger went with him, and the, the bright light was try to get to RT Oregon. Right. Take it from there. Well, so <laughs> I should mention, so I, I, uh, my wife and I, we have four beautiful children. They're all adults now. Um, uh, three girls and, uh, and one boy, and they, they've all been very supportive and sensitive about this situation and their uncle that they've never met. And uh, in particular, our son James, who seems to be extremely talented at research, um, he's the one who read uh, Lynn's book, Whiskey Tank. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Go Foxtrot and came to me with his eyes gigantic and saying, Dad, you got to read this. Right. And so, um, and this was before we knew Lynn was connected at all in terms of this Bright Light team to go out and find Randy's, Randy's uh, team. Uh, and so James reached out to him on Facebook, <clears throat> and, um, and, and Lynn responded to him. And, it would be, and when <clears throat> James reached out, he said, hey, did you know my brother or something like that? Yeah, it's, and it's, um, <clears throat> you'll see it right here. I'm going to have you read it <clears throat> certainly <laughs> it's dated uh, i think it's dated june 12 2018 18 okay <clears throat> so lynn responded to james inquiry said james yes <clears throat> excuse me i knew ray and super very well and had a lot of respect for all the men of rt oregon at the time i was the team leader of rt idaho those two teams were the most active, ran more missions than any other of the teams of Command and Control North, CCN. The day Oregon got into trouble, I had Idaho at a launch pad site called Mylock. We had just come back from a bright light rescue mission and were getting ready to head for Da Nang. We stopped, reloaded our gear, and stood ready to bright light RT Oregon. The Mylock, Mylock launch site commander <clears throat> would not allow us to go in. Air support for RT Oregon was reporting they were surrounded by what looked like a 3,000-man regiment. It was determined that sending in another team would be suicide for the team and their helicopter support crews. Oregon and Idaho 
have been planning a joint radio direction finding RDF mission to interdict truck convoys along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. We had trained up, become proficient on the equipment, and each of us flew visual reconnaissance uh, missions selecting insertion and extraction points. We were ready to go when Oregon got assigned the 13 November mission. When Dave Robinson showed up at CCN, he asked if I would take him into the target at the last known RT Oregon coordinates. The entire AO, area of operations, was still very hot, overrun with the enemy. Because of that, we had to do a one-day-in-and-out mission. If we had attempted to stay overnight on the ground, we would have been lost as well. The insertion chopper landed us directly at the coordinates where we began a spiral outward search pattern. We found absolutely no trace of Oregon, not even shell casings indicating a battle. Randy Suber and Ron Ray were my friends. During the war, I didn't make friends with other teams, let alone the guys on my team. Many times I watched teams depart for a mission never to return or come back all shot up. Each of us believed we were immortal. It would never happen to us. To this day, I miss those guys. They were willing, even uh, excited to go anywhere, anytime, day or night. I'm sad I missed meeting your dad at SOAR in October. I know from personal experience it's difficult to lose a brother in war. One of my younger brothers was hit by a mortar in 1965. Although he wasn't killed, he was never the same since. Not quite living in this world, if you know what I mean. If you have questions and want to talk more, please feel free to contact me. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you and your family. Lynn Blackjack Black. Indeed, I forgot about that letter. You told me years ago about it. Well, a few years back. Yeah. And that was your first major flash in terms of the C&C side of it, the SOG side. Really, absolutely. I mean, you know, books were coming out after that 20-year moratorium. Right. But this is this one, this is the one that means the most. Sure. Yeah. And, and for him to take the time to do this and just the fact that it's Lynn Black. Yes. Uh, <laughs> makes it even even sweeter. I, I wouldn't want anyone else on that Bright Light team. Oh, yeah. Except his other partner on RT Idaho. Well, at that time, I was doing courier duty. <laughs> yeah. And he had Robinson, who was just an outstanding soul. He'd been on Idaho previously. Yeah, uh, ran a few missions with Lynn, right? Um, and uh, just an outstanding soldier. Yep. So that's fifty years later, right? Oh my God! Yeah, all that time. And so then, um, did your parents ever get a sense of exactly what Sog was? And yes, um, and it's uh, um, you know, books started coming out, but the really the real breakthrough, ironically, um, was. Um, I was at a, a corporate real estate conference, and uh, well, let me back up. Um, you know, uh, I I was living in Oklahoma City, and uh, Bo Greitz was coming to town, and this is in the late '80s. Oh, okay. And and uh, I was fascinated about what he was trying to do, so I went down to a hotel and I listened to him talk. And, uh, and I went up to him afterwards and said, hey, you know, 
did you know my brother? And he goes, no, no. But, but he was, you know, he was again on a mercenary, I guess a real life Rambo was trying to go in and, uh, and, uh, he tried to put together a mission to go back into rescue Leon, so rescue uh, prisoners. Yeah, right. Then Soldier of Fortune was involved. Right, and then there were oh, some technical sides of the story. And then one of the key informants from the, that was supposedly leading them to a potential American POW camp in Laos in the mid '80s uh, was turned out to be not reliable. Right, and they had a lot of effort there. And, and Bo Grice's role. There were some questions about him, but at that point in time, when he was leading up to it, there was a great deal of activity and publicity on it. Yep. And that's one of those mysteries, because we knew um, that there were Americans that were still in captivity from the Secret War, or Americans somehow that were in Laos, Cambodia, even Vietnam, right? that did not make it up to Hanoi, weren't on the list. And there's a book out now, I forget the name of it, but where Henry Kissinger even acknowledged that. Right. And I don't know if you know anything more about that details of that side of that story, but still, here's your family. You, you're moving forward with life, the, the loss of a brother, and your parents have to live with that, and all the holidays that come up, you know, you still, there's always that moment in time where there's that pregnant pause. Yeah, yeah. We wish Randy was here, and yep. uh, we, we may not see him. Now, we're, now it's 50 years later, we kind of, Say maybe it's not going to happen. Right. There was a there was a, a, a an instance uh, where my parents had uh, retired in San Antonio, another great military town, and Indeed. we're in the living room and we're talking about Randy. And my dad just looks at me and he goes, "I hope it happened quickly." Ooh. And I thought, okay, he's yeah, he's come to a conclusion on this. Yeah. You know, I wasn't amazing. ready to quite say that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, so the book writes things, and it's important in terms of, uh, you know, he, he comes up to me afterwards, and he looks me right in the eye, and he goes, we're looking for your brother. Well, you know, I was mature enough to know. I mean, again, I'm, a, I'm probably in my 20s. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and to his credit, he, he never asked us for money. He never asked me for money. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I learned some things from him that were helpful, but I, I put out this same sort of request. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm amazed that our family's never heard from anybody. Well, we're still in the eighties, right? So that 20 years is still going on. And he goes, oh, you should just put out an ad in the drop and just describe your brother and say, did anybody know him? And the drop is the special forces association. Uh, newsletter goes out quarterly. Yeah, and they have information. Uh, people that are SF men that served that passed away. Some feature stories on prior activities. And now it's a much bigger publication than what it was back in the eighties. But still, that was circulated amongst all SF and, and their family members. Right. Yes, sir. So uh, I did, and there were three responses. No. And, uh, yeah, and two of them were flakes, uh, for sure. Is that right? <laughs> but. Phonies, which again, thank God I had enough uh, common sense to be able to recognize that. Um, and uh, but the, but one of them uh, says, "Hey, it's you know, it's your lucky day. I was in Sog. I knew your brother, and I'm just about to complete a four volume book on Sog." No, Harf and he goes, Sal. And, uh, and that was Harv Sal. And he and he said, "You know, I'll start sending you excerpts of it before it gets published." Well, he self published it. 
And, um, you know, bless his heart, he wasn't a very good writer. And so it was hard to read, but at least he was describing for the first time sure, uh, a description of what those missions were like, what they were all about. Yeah. And so um, uh, that was cool. And I, and I bought a set of those books for my parents and I said, look, well, only one of the, the four was actually kind of readable. And, right. and made more sense in terms of our family perspective. They were very technical, what he was trying to do. And, and, and at any rate, at least it was like, okay, now I know why we haven't heard from anybody. <laughs> this actually <laughs> yeah. begins to make sense. And um, so that triggered uh, something else, which I had always heard uh, from my parents that, uh, that uh, Randy, right before he attended a New Mexico Military Institute for high school that Roger Staubach had gone to the same school. No. And I and I that's what I'd say. Uh, <laughs> I think my parents have their wires crossed here that can't possibly be true. <laughs> and so at any rate, I um, I'm in the corporate real estate business and Roger Staubach is in the corporate real estate business and um, has been a long time. And he's giving a speech at a um, at a uh, big convention in Orange County. And so I go up to him afterwards and, you know, he's used to people wanting to talk about the Dallas Cowboys sure, or his, sure. you know, his, or, or football or um, uh, corporate real estate. And I, I go up to him and I said, hey, I, I understand that you went to New Mexico Mil- Military Institute. And his eyes just went got huge. And he goes, yeah. He goes, that, that school changed my life. No. And I went, really? Before the Navy Academy. Yeah. He said, he said that he was sent there for a, a fifth year of high school and one year of junior college. And he said, that's where I learned how to play quarterback. Cause, no. Because New Mexico Military Institute has a high school and then it has a junior college. Sure. All together. And they have two different football teams. And uh, accordingly... And uh, he played, I guess, two years at this junior college and, and became a quarterback. And he said that's what got me into the Naval Academy. And two years later, he was the Heisman Trophy winner. Wow. So I think Randy started at New Mexico Military Institute in 1963. And, uh, and he, we, <laughs> the family sent him there because our family had been assigned to Turkey and he was uh, he he was a little bit of a troublemaker, and my parents said we're not sending a uh, you know a sixteen fifteen year old kid to the Mideast to get in trouble. Let's send him, and so that's where they sent him. No kidding. Yeah. So I, that inspired me so much, and I said, well, this must really be quite a quite a place. I'd never been there. My parents had never been there. Yeah. And so I um, decided to dedicate a set of these books to the school. Like, hey, you know, this is a guy that went there. This is my brother. Maybe, you know, somebody yeah, sure. at school would be interested. So I call the alumni office, and the alumni secretary says, that name's – your your brother's name's really familiar. Can you wait a minute? So she gets – she puts me on hold, and she talks to somebody, and then she comes back. The director of the alumni would love to speak with you. He, 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 went, he was in your brother's platoon or squad or whatever yeah, it yeah. was, and he was a football teammate. And so long story short – I dedicated those books, and then I went down there. I took James, young James, my sure. son, when he was maybe six or seven years old and didn't know what was going on at all. And we went to a, a reunion, 
and they had already had a. Uh, it's cool. They had a. They have a, a little memorial plaza, uh, and, and people lost it from that school and, and all the different wars. And there's sure enough, they had a special plaque for Randy. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. And then my, my parents uh, endowed a, a scholarship, which I don't think they have. Maybe they ran out of money the, <laughs> as far as that scholarship. But it was sure. for the uh, scholar-athlete, and, uh, and it was in Randy's name and then a, one of his teammates, um, a guy named Tex Clifford. So they called it the Clifford Super uh, Scholarship wow. Program. So that but, went on for a few years. Because the thing that – over the years, as we tried through the league and through the SOA, trying to get back to the whole POW-MIA issue itself is we knew, the guys we knew who we lost, <clears throat> we knew the story, but we never had it at a personal level like the families do. Yeah. I mean, all that time and not getting um, answers for the longest period of time. Right. And then, like you said, you had to come through the back door and then the letter from Lynn Black – and then, was it 2019 that we had the uh, the National League of People, or was it a DPA family briefing in San Diego? And that's where you and I met for the first time. 2018, yeah. So uh, that's a that's a it's a that's a great story, um, uh, and certainly a breakthrough for me. Uh, but again, so 50 it, years later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> January 2018. So in December, I start getting invitations from um, Department of Defense, DPAA. Uh, hey, come to the family update meeting in San Diego. It's going to be in January. So I get a letter and kind of stick it on my desk. And, yeah, I'm not interested. Yeah, because your family had gone to the National League briefings. Yeah. And before, I'm assuming at some point, they had gone to one of these uh, deep uh, oh, different they, agencies. They, they, had they went to all of them. Yeah, okay. They were very good until and and they passed on you know twenty twenty three years ago. So you know it came to a stop eventually. Um, but you know as long as they could, they were going to all of these things. And so you know, uh, you know my 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 other siblings were absolutely not interested at all. It's just too painful for them to even think about. And I'm kind of in the same frame, you know. I sure. get it, and I, you know, look at it and throw it in the trash. And then another one comes, once a year. <laughs> no, no, another <laughs> invitation for the right. same event. And I and I, yeah, I sort of look at it. I'm, no, I'm not going to go to that. And then I get a phone call. Yeah, you know, and I'll take the phone call. I just listen to the voicemail. Nah, I'm not going to go do that. And then, and then all of a sudden, and, and you know, I don't know any other way of saying it, but it was an angel message that said, "Hey." You need to go to this San Diego. <laughs> yeah, you need. It's just to say, I live in Orange County. You, right. You need to go to this, and it's not about your brother. Well, then what's it about? You know, and and it's it's uh, if you had asked my siblings, and I'm sure my parents were in the same boat. Yeah. Hey, do you want our government to be spending all this time, money, resources to try to recover the remains of you know that team? No. And then I said to myself, nobody's asking us. Then why are they doing it? <laughs> and it, and it That's and, a different perspective. And I got yeah. a, a much bigger and better answer. And the answer is, well, they're doing it. Obviously, they want to do the right thing for the, for the MIA families, but they're really doing it for all active duty military. I mean, that was really the message that Reagan made in 1980. It's 
if you're in our military, we've got your back, and we want you to know we're going to do everything we can as a country to to get you back home. Yeah, for the record, nobody did more for the whole POW MIA issue from our government than Ronald Reagan. Right. Absolutely. Made it. He called it the number one priority. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> so it couldn't have possibly been, but it, but that's what he said. <laughs> and obviously, we like that as an MIA family. And, sure. And um, but having that bigger perspective of oh, I I need to go down here to support that bigger cause, that bigger purpose, and yeah, all of the people, many of which we know. Uh, including the three amigos, if I might say so, uh, and and certainly people like Ann Mills Griffin for the families. I mean, um, you know, people are putting their heart and soul in this. They really want to. They really yeah. want to. Uh, you know, come to some conclusions and get some resolution. And and I said, I need to go down there. It's no, you know, I don't want to feel like a victim anymore. Right. That's not doing any good for anybody. So. I'm going to go, and that's going to be my 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 outlook and perspective. And I was actually joyful, happy, and I'm down wow. there, and I'm blown away at I, I, it's a, you know I, I have to get up at zero dark thirty to to make it on time, and I had just been on a on a one week um, trip out of town, and I arrived like midnight the night before, and I'm like, mm-hmm. eh, do I? but yeah, I'd already made that decision. I'm going to go, and I and again, this is going to sound a little bit funny, but I, I know that the Jocko podcast had something to do with that, too. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Because I was a faithful listener, and I know that, you know, in fact, I even, I even sent an email to Jocko and to Leif Babin, and I said, what would you do? I was kind of <laughs> conflicted a little yeah. bit about it, you know, when these yeah, letters yeah. and stuff were going. They didn't respond. So I must, and I didn't know their email address. And they get a lot of combo. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so, but so I, um, so I go down and and it's and it's for families, not just for the Vietnam War, but it was for Korea and for World War II. There must have been I don't know. You remember six hundred, seven hundred people there? It was a big room. several hundred. Yes, it was huge. It was and um, and so we hear a couple of presentations. There's a break. I'm walking down a hall. I see a guy with an emblem yeah. on his shirt and I and I go I know that and I walk up to you and I say where when were you there you know what would you do yeah and you say the right you know 1969 <laughs> for one thing I go did you know my brother and he and he goes and you say yeah yeah, yeah I knew your brother and you're like what <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After was, after all these years, I mean, the itch I wanted to scratch was, please, I'd love to meet somebody who sure. served with him or who knew him. And you said, yeah, I knew your brother, and I know several others who knew him even better. And that's when you connected me with Mike Taylor, with Dan Thompson, with Lynn Black, and several others. Right. And it's a needle. It's more than a needle in a haystack because such a small community, such a small mission as a you know within the the Vietnam War I mean that was pretty incredible it was <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll never forget the day because you know at that point Mike Taylor was the chairman of the joint SOA SFA PLWMA committee right and 2018 um, <clears throat> that was the year that Mike went to Vietnam and to Laos he was a joint mission 
the uh, DPA was gone over, and the, and the National League of PLWMA founders have gone on a separate track. And Ann Mills Griffith, who's been the chair, the, the CEO for 50-plus years, right. was going. And she her mission was to go to North Vietnam to see people, again, re, regarding this mission. DPA had their meetings with DIA and with North Vietnam. And I forget what else they did, but for our mission, Mike went there and then to Laos and Cambodia. When they're in Laos, they meet the NVA veterans who served on the SOG Hunter killer teams right? that were designed to track us down. And I don't know if I could have done that or not, Yeah. but Mike did it. He pulled it off with a plan because the idea being if we can get help from anybody, maybe we can get more information. 2018, 2019, uh, we had improved rapport, and then COVID hit because we had other plans to travel to get back to that. Yeah. And uh, so that was one of those sidebars about that, about that meeting there. And if it hadn't been for Mike, I wouldn't have been there. Yeah. Because at that point, I'd been involved with the committee, and, of course, a lot of other things were going on. So Mike goes, hey, come on. So I drove down, and then we bump into you. And, and so 50 years later, you finally get more insight, and you met a guy that your brother – Right. Played tennis with. And I'm not sure where Mike Taylor found a tennis court in, in Da Nang, but he did. <laughs> I'm guessing they played on dirt, <laughs> not concrete. Well, but so, <clears throat> yeah. I, so, again, back to that family update meeting in San Diego. I see you. You introduced me to Rick Estes, who's with you. Right. Who I guess at that time was the president of Yes, he was the, president of the SOA. SOA. And, and, and Mike was uh, chairman of that committee. And, I, and I'm... <clears throat> As you can imagine from a family member, what are these guys doing here? <laughs> you know, what's a, what are two SOG guys doing, Three. doing here? Yeah. Well, Mike wasn't there. Mike, I think, at that very moment was actually on that trip. Maybe on the trip. Okay. In Southeast Asia, right. which was added even more to the sweet coincidence. I mean, wow. Sure. Absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, and Rick Estes, we'll, we'll learn more about Rick in episode 38 uh, for SOGcast. But, uh, yeah, he was the president. Ran recon for a year yeah. and then came back and then deployed to Iraq with Special Forces uh, National wow. Guard unit when he was 58. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. But we'll get into that a little bit later. But So your family side of this thing, I'll, I'll never forget it. For me, it was personal at a level that's gut-wrenching to finally meet other family members because from our side, we come home, we know we can't talk, right? and there's no internet. And if you don't have a phone number or an address for somebody, you're not going to hear from anybody. Yeah. And the SFA, like you, at least you got responses. I sent letters to the SFA in the early days, and the silence was deafening. Yeah. Put a little note, hey, does anybody remember being at the FOB1? Or <clears throat> right. And so take it, So moving forward from there, since then we've – oh, and then also 2018 was a, the year of the 50th reunion of the SOA. Yep. And so that was uh, – the annual meeting was in Vegas, and the families were invited, and that was the year that the uh, they paid homage to the attack for 20, uh, August 23rd, 68. Right. And so a lot of family members were there, and that was the first time you met more people – yeah. From who knew your brother, and also from that, because that happened the year before your brother arrived. Yeah, but still, another bonding experience, f finding people and families that were impacted right. by the war. 
Well, and you know, again, uh, be careful what <coughs> be careful what you wish for. Sometimes, <laughs> like, okay, now I've met some people. Are these are these freaks? Are these weirdos? <laughs> are these guys goofy, or are they real? And they're real. Oh yeah. And that was uh, that was fun. It was encouraging and uh, and heartwarming. So um, just to put a little bit more. From the family side, absolutely. Just a little bit. You know, again, my parents had already passed on. I was so excited. Uh, my siblings, again, uh, just just emotionally spent. And, How could they not be? And, 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 yeah, but I, the sad thing is I think if they had met the people that I've met, they'd go, oh, man, this is cool. Because they, the people that I've met, they remind me of my brother. They're not my brother. Everyone's different. That's what's been interesting for me in meeting SOG veterans is that it's a really diverse group of personalities, um, amazingly, and yet there's something still very universal and common about them, and and um, in a good way and consistent. And um, it's just so encouraging to see that and to see that that's how special this your operation was. But just to put a little bit more weight into it, who you introduced me to. Again, I wanted to know somebody who knew him and served yeah. with him. And um, and uh, so one's Mike Taylor, who actually ran two missions with them. Right. Uh, one sounded like it was inc- incredibly quiet and mellow and whatever. And the other it's one sounded, of the rare cakewalks. And, well, and then one of them <laughs> sounded like they had a shootout in the Ashow Valley. And before, I always wanted to talk to Mike a little bit about that. I never got any, uh, any, any real dialogue with him about that before he passed on, and I, and I regret that. But, but it wasn't just Mike Taylor. It was Dan Thompson, and, and Dan Thompson was the Covey writer on the mission. And so I had a oh, yeah. long conversation with him about and that. So just for the record, the Covey writer, we have a Ford Air Controller who flies – he talks to the team on the ground and coordinates TAC air for a team in trouble. And the code name was Covey. So an Air Force pilot would fly an O2 observation plane, and there'd be a Covey ride. In this case, Dan Thompson, who was a veteran. We, was, we served together at FOB 1, 4, <clears throat> and then uh, later on. But on this day, take it from there, please. Well, you know, just listening to what he experienced, and he didn't know the guys on the team that well. He didn't know Randy that well. He just, again, that was just his assignment. That was his mission. But just listening to, you know, the whole experience he had in being the Cubby, watching the team insert, turning around and heading back to base, and then hearing the cry for help, and weather moved in, and they were out of gas, and they couldn't do anything to help them, and they couldn't bring in air support. But just listening to his whole description of it was fascinating. And uh, yeah, he was there that day. He was there, and he's the guy. He's probably the, the last man to see the team, and, or to, and, to hear and, him. and to hear him. Yeah, Whoa. yeah. And then, of course, <clears throat> as we were talking about earlier, to just to round it out was Lynn. You know, Lynn Black being on the the Bright Light team several days later, and then getting this description many years later, right? Oh yeah. But but thank God we got it. Well, it's again that's all a reflection of just what a family, one family, and today are the fifty SOG families that are out there that have yeah. lost family members, yeah, like yours, and um, I think that uh, 
Would there be any other key points here do we want to highlight now as we kind of roll down the uh, final road here? Well, I have a fun one. Oh, yes, that's right. And it, and it, uh, <laughs> Speaking of Jocko, our favorite uh, podcaster. Yeah, it may have something to do with where we're sitting right now, which is kind of fun <laughs> for all you podcast listeners. Indeed. Which is, I am one of them. I'm the number one fan, I think. Um, so um, one of the things that you also did for me was you happened to be the president of Chapter 78. Our SFA Forces. chapter, yeah. yeah. And uh, you said, hey, I, I'm going to get you to come to our meetings, going to get you involved up there, which has really been great. And um, just a couple of SOG people, not very many. Just a but, few, but but uh, <laughs> but but mostly uh, you know special forces guys that were in A teams, medics, so on and so forth, and they've been great to me, and it's just really been fun to go and and attend and some phenomenal speakers, and uh, you know it, it's I'm I've, I was never in the military, I was around the military, kind of you know came from a, a very deep military family, but I was a civilian, I am a civilian, indeed, and yet I, I felt at home there. And I know I'm not one of them, but the sense of humor, the chatter, the dialogue, it's like, you know, I think for most people this might be a little awkward, but no. I, well, feel, in this case, I feel at home here. Yeah, from our perspective, <laughs> the guys that are here today, you you and your family, the Gold Star families, have a special yeah. place in the family of Spec Ops. It's sacred. It really is, and you were part of that. Well, they've been uh, super, super nice and, and supportive. And, well, then and, the other and, thing and is you, you kind of educated me. You said there's a thing called a podcast. Are you aware of this? Well, go, yeah, yeah, kind of. But And then you said there's some guy in San Diego named Jocko Willink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here's the story. The story is I, I was so grateful for what you had, all the doors you had opened. And, and let's just stop and, and reflect on that for a minute. If there was ever a guy to meet, <laughs> the first guy to meet, could it have ever been anybody better than John Stryker Meyer? I don't know about that, but let's go on. Well, it was. It was a gold mine. <laughs> and so after you got me involved, I said, hey, um, Tilt, I, um, I, 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 I'm so grateful. I'd like to make a contribution to, you know, to the chapter, sure. chapter 78. And you said, absolutely not. I'm like, really? Okay. And so I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm thinking about it, and and uh, and I said, I need to get him on the Jocko podcast. I mean, your books are amazing, the stories are amazing, Sog is amazing. I got to get you on the Jocko podcast. I don't know Jocko Willink. I just I'm just a faithful listener. And I was just learning about what the podcasts were at the time. It's like. I was as dumb as I look when it comes to podcasting. We did have the conversation. <laughs> I got to get you on the Jocko Willing, you know, yeah. podcast. And you said, "What's a podcast?" Indeed. <laughs> and so I thought, you know what? As a as a as an act of gratitude, maybe maybe we can get some oh, wow. some SOG exposure, and yeah, maybe yeah. we can help sell a few books. And so I reached out to my son, my millennial son James, and said, "Hey, can you?" Can you figure out how to reach out to Jocko on Twitter or Instagram or yeah, Facebook somewhere. or whatever? And he did. And and he said, hey, would you like to meet a SOG warrior? And Jocko responds with one word, absolutely. No kidding. It wasn't affirmative. <laughs> it was absolutely. And oh, so wow. James responds back to him on whatever channel they're on and says, yeah, yeah. what are the next steps? And we didn't hear anything back. Probably because he's bombarded, right? Oh, yeah. And so... 
dad here says, oh, I got to go old school. So I'm going to get a couple of these books. I'm going to describe how you and I met and all the doors you opened, uh, you know, as far as connecting with people that knew Randy Suber. <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to write that up. I'm going to take the books. I'm going to drive down to the, the gym. They're right. And I'm going to deliver them in person. That's old school selling, right? The Victory Center down there in the Midway. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I walk in and I say, is Jocko here? And they say, no, he, but his office is right back here. And I say, would you, would you make sure he sees this package? Oh, he'll look at it. And so... And he sure, did. Sure enough, he did. And and uh, and so, uh, uh, not long after, maybe a month or so after, they responded back to me and said, "Yeah, we'd love to meet him." And that's and then they turned it over to you, and the rest is history. It was, yeah. And so we had uh, uh, Jocko podcast number one eighty. For those curious, that was our very first one that was uh, posted in June of uh, twenty nineteen. And then my favorite podcast was was a Jocko podcast one eight six. Yeah. Where in this room we had the Frenchman Doug Letourneau. Yeah, absolute favorite. And uh, yeah, we posted. He posted that a week later, and then on July twenty fourth we lost Doug, but we had a great response to that. Like uh, two weeks later, two right? weeks. Oh yeah, from the day of the interview. Yeah, but that was all part of the uh, the Jocko experience. <laughs> And my world's changed now. I know a little bit more about podcasting. A little bit. And he's kind enough to <laughs> have, to fund our Sogcast interviews, which we're yeah. today number 37 here. So anything else, sir, to, to close out on that positive note? No, just, uh, you know, one, uh, one wonderful blessing it's all been. Indeed. <clears throat> so... Um, so we thank, again, we do thank Jocko Willing Productions who make this possible. We thank all the men and women in our armed services who have fought and bled for this country. We also thank Border Patrol, law enforcement, first responders, EMT, corrections officers. And again, um, most importantly these days, at the borders, uh, our Border Patrol. And um, we also uh, thank the families that have given so much over the years. And uh, we also remember and salute the men and women who have not returned. As we said earlier in the podcast, there are still 1,581 Americans in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War that are still listed as missing in action. And the families, like the Super family and the many others of the 58,000 Americans that were killed in action during the Vietnam War that gave so much so much pain they suffered for our country. And we thank you for that to the Super family. God bless America.